Well, church, let's pray together as we look at God's word. Uh, Father, what's written in this passage is amazing. We pray that the promise that you will put your laws into our minds and write them on our hearts. Lord, would this be true of your word as we look at it today? I pray that you would impress it upon our minds and write it in our hearts. Fill our hearts with wonder at your salvation and the greatness of your son. We pray in his name. Amen. John Piper, a number of years ago, said, it's not books that change your life, it's actually paragraphs that change your life. I don't know if you've ever read a book and just one paragraph uh, is imprinted on your mind, it sticks with you, it just changes you. Well, I want to go further and say, actually, uh, it's not just paragraphs that change your life, but even sentences can change your life. And there's a sentence that uh, Trevin Wax has at the beginning of his book, The Thrill of Orthodoxy, that I think has the potential to change your life. It's going to be on the screen. It says this, the church faces her biggest challenge, not when new errors start to win, but when old truths no longer wow. That is a profound sentence. The church is not just, the problem with the church is not just uh, false doctrine and false teaching, although that is a threat, that's an ongoing threat, but maybe a more sinister, uh, subtle threat is when the old truths no longer wow. Have you ever found yourself singing the songs on a Sunday morning and when you take a step back, you're like, my goodness, what am I singing? This is incredible. Or the word is read and certain truths are read and uh, you catch yourself yawning. Or when you come to the communion table, you know, when the elements are passed to you and you're holding what Jesus Christ himself said represents his sacrifice for you. And uh, when that no longer wows, we're in danger. And so Trevor Wax says, we need to be careful not just about false teaching, but about just becoming casual and losing our wonder at truths that should really amaze. Our greatest challenge isn't just that we'll deny the faith, but that we'll become bored with the truth that God has given us. And uh, Wax goes on and he says this, Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings, said that one of the most regrettable features of human nature is how quickly we become unsatisfied with the good. Um, I, we were at an all-inclusive resort uh, just a week ago, and the first day, you know, I, my standards are, my expectations are kind of low when you go into one of these places, and then we go to the buffet the first day, and I'm expecting kind of mediocre food, and the first day, we're just like, it's just like twice the size of this hall where we're meeting right now, and the food was amazing. At about day three or four, it was like, oh, this stuff again? Like... Uh, <laughs> I mean, we could choose anything. I didn't have to cook it. I didn't have to do any dishes. Uh, it was amazing. And day three or four, you're like, I am so sick and tired. There's only like 500 choices of food that I get to enjoy here. Like, could they come up with anything else? And so Tolkien says, that's our problem, right? We just, God has given us so much and we become bored with it and unsatisfied with the good. Again, I think of marriages. How many of us, I've ever had the feeling of like, I have this all the time. Like when I married Shar, I feel like I pulled off the biggest swindle of my life. I don't know how I tricked her into saying yes. And she walked down the aisle and I was like, pinch myself, like, is this really happening? And uh, I can't believe that I get to enjoy this. And year two or three of marriage, I was looking at her thinking like, you need to improve. And I was like, it hit me at a certain point in my marriage. I'm like, 
she does not need to improve. God has blessed me incredibly. And the very fact that I could look at her with any heart of criticism at all is just a sign that I've lost sight of the amazing gift that she's given me. And I had to recapture that wonder. Friends, this is the danger that Trevor Wax is talking about. Spiritually, we lose sight of the amazing reality that God has given us. So uh, Tolkien goes on and he says, we receive good gifts from God and then grow bored with blessings. We end up with spiritual dullness, blurry vision, hardness of heart. That is the challenge, not a challenge, but the challenge for the church. I wonder if you agree with that today. I wonder if you agree that one of the greatest dangers is we come and we sing, we listen to God's word, we hear about who Jesus is, what he's done for us, and we're bored by it. And what happens when this happens? Well, we don't have to wonder too much because uh, scripture tells us what happens. Other things start to get our attention. We look at other things and they start to look a lot more compelling than Jesus. And we become distracted and we move away from Jesus, the secondary things, and it's spiritually fatal for us. We're in the middle of this series through the book of Hebrews, and one of the challenges that he's writing to address is uh, these people had been gripped with the wonder of Jesus. They had seen who he was in his glory. They'd seen his work, and they'd become a little bit dull as they looked at Jesus. They'd lost their wonder at who Jesus is, and they began to drift and, and it's almost like the details don't matter. The details are different for them. They drifted back to Judaism. But I don't think a lot of us are probably tempted to drift there. Maybe some of us are tempted to drift back to Judaism. But it's almost like uh, it matters for that. It matters. The details matter. But for us, it could be completely different details. We can drift to different things that are kind of close to Jesus, but not the center of our faith. And he writes this book to focus their attention back on Jesus. And he tells them, don't settle for anything else. Don't lose your wonder. In these chapters, uh, we call this series Above All because Jesus is above all. He goes through all the things Jesus is greater than, greater than Moses, greater than Joshua. And in the section we're in, he's looking at the Old Testament sacrificial system. This is the thing that was drawing them away. He wants them to see that Jesus is greater than the Old Testament sacrificial system. Now, for you, you're like, duh. <laughs> okay, may, that might not be your temptation. I just want to tell you, Jesus is greater than whatever is distracting you from following him. And he wants them to return to the core of their faith and point back to Jesus. He, he doesn't want them to miss who Jesus is for things that only point to Jesus. Let me ask you today, what is it that is tempting you to draw your attention away from Jesus. It probably isn't the same thing they faced. But you, like me, are tempted to lose your wonder at who Jesus is. And something else will captivate you. It could be something really good that could captivate you. And it becomes more important than Jesus, even though it's secondary to Jesus. Beware, the writer is saying, of any substitute for Jesus. And might I add, especially the religious ones. Beware of, especially, uh, they were drifted back to Judaism, which was a gift from God. God. The old covenant was a gift from God, but it was meant to point to Jesus. There's many good things that God has given us that were meant to point to Jesus, and they can become the distraction. They can be the thing that God gave us actually as a means to an end, and we can make them the end themselves. Church attendance, 
uh, even Bible knowledge, theology. All of these things are good. They're gifts from God, but they're meant to point us to Jesus. And when they take the place of Jesus, they become actually dangerous. And so what are these things? And to paraphrase Trevin Wax, we face our greatest danger, not when new errors start to creep in, but when things begin to distract us from the wonder of Jesus. And so here's the agenda that he has in this passage. He wants to show us that Jesus is better than the Old Testament sacrificial system. And so what he does here is he says, guys, I just want to tell you again how amazing Jesus is. And as we walk through this chapter, he points us to three things that should really capture our wonder at who God is again, or who Jesus is again. And so here they are. What three things about Jesus do we just need to look at and gasp? What three things do we just need to go, wow, what an amazing Savior. I can't believe he is this good, this awesome. Here's the first one in verses 1 to 2. He says, wonder at where Jesus is right now as he represents you. Wonder where Jesus is right now as he represents you. You might have visited Jerusalem. It's pretty amazing. Although I have to say the first time I uh, saw it, I remember being in the tour bus and pulling up and uh, I, you know, all the Psalms about it being such an exalted city. It, I pulled up and it was like, kind of wow, but kind of disappointing. Like it's dirty, it's old, it's not as big a mountain as I pictured. But if you stood there, I mean, one of the things as you approach the Western Wall is you're looking at something ancient that goes way back to uh, just thousands of years ago. And I'm sitting there thinking like Abraham was here. Uh, Abraham took his son Isaac to Mount Moriah, which is the site of the temple. That's amazing. Abraham stood here. Uh, David stood here. I mean, David built the city of David, which was a little bit shy of where the temple now is. But uh, the temple where David's uh, house was that he built, it was he could look and see Mount Moriah. And he was like, I want to build a temple. And God's like, not yet. I'll leave that to your son. Solomon was there. And on that day, the very presence of God came down as Solomon built a temple. I was sitting there at the Western Wall going, this is amazing. This is amazing. Think of the history. Jesus, forget all those. Jesus stood here. Jesus stood here with the disciples and they were amazed. Like, look at this. Like how amazing this building is. It's incredible. The high priest entered the Holy of Holies once a year in that location, stood in the very presence of God himself. Sacrifices were offered at that place. It's amazing. In verses one and two, what the writer says is, you think that's amazing? Let me point you to something even more amazing than the temple itself. Verses one and two say this. Now, the point in what we're saying is this. We have such a great high priest, piggybacking on chapter seven, uh, the high priestly ministry of Jesus. We have a high priest, and where is he seated? He's not going into the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem once a year. Where is he seated? He is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. And what he's saying is this. You know how the high priest went in one, once a year. It took a week of preparation. And it was terrifying for the priest because uh, if he went in and he wasn't fully prepared and cleansed, it would be fatal for him. So one day a year made atonement for the people, went into the Holy of Holies. The rest of the year couldn't go near it because he wasn't allowed. 
And as he went in, he went into a human tent made with hands. God commanded it to be made, but it was a human tent. We now have a high priest who permanently lives in the very presence of God, the Holy of Holies, year-round, eternally. And he's not... The the high priest, as he went into the uh, Holy of Holies, never got to sit down. He never in the Holy of Holies said, like, I... Jesus Christ himself, because he's finished his work, he sat down in God's presence because his work is completed, the work of atonement has been done, and it is the true tent that God himself set up, not men. What he's saying is this, where is Jesus the high priest? As he wrote these words, the high priests were, the priests in Jerusalem were still serving, and and what he's saying here is this, don't look to Jerusalem. If you think that's amazing, look to where Jesus is. Your high priest is currently serving. The temple is only merely a shadow of the greater reality that you get to experience. Your high priest right now is not in some earthly building. Your high priest is in the very presence of God himself. And not only that, he's sitting where no high priest ever sat before. He's seated on the throne of heaven at God the Father's right hand in the place of prominence. Jesus is exalted And right now, as he does his high priestly ministry on your behalf, he's sitting in control of the whole universe, and he's representing you before the God of this universe, and he's doing this work of mediation for you right now in the presence of God himself. And I think what the writer is saying is, do you get that? Like, don't just think about that, but does that make you gasp for a minute? That right now, you have a representative standing in the very presence of God himself, who's made atonement for all of your sins, His work is completed. There's nothing more that needs to be done. And he's in the presence of God himself doing his work for you. Friends, the earthly tabernacle was only meant as a picture of this heavenly tabernacle. Where Jesus stands is not something that where Moses or Solomon or Herod built. He serves in the presence of God himself continually, not one day a year. You have a friend in high places. You have a high priest in the highest of places, on the throne of heaven itself. I I, I don't know if any of you go to Doors Open. Once a year, they open up the doors of Toronto, and you get to go in buildings where normally it's locked. I've been to some cool buildings in my time. A few years ago, I went to the mayor's office, and I just, like, strolled into the mayor's office in Toronto, like, and got to see, like, there's the desk or whatever. And it's kind of weird, because it's like every other day of the year, I would have to have a really good reason to go to the mayor's office and just stroll in there like, hey, I just am here like taking the pictures, right? (laughs) Friends, you don't have to, you have instant access to the throne room of the universe. And in fact, there's somebody there who always has you on his mind. You don't have to interrupt him. You're on his mind because he's currently working as he's worshiped and adored by angels and saints. He's actually doing work on your behalf and interceding for you. And the writer is saying, why would you ever settle for earthbound priests in Jerusalem when you already have a high priest in the presence of God himself? When you start to lose wonder at that fact, you'll begin to drift to lesser truths to the peril of your souls. I appreciate the songs we've sung today. I appreciate the prayer of confession. Do you realize as you sin, as we've all sinned this week, that Jesus Christ himself has been interceding for you in your need, in your your propensity to wonder. He has been working on your behalf. Do you realize that, I mean, the high priest had to sleep at night 
With Jesus, there's no lapses, there's no disaffections, there's no distractions, there's only a constancy of intercession serving you. The one who is working on your behalf right now works in the presence of God himself. He could not be better placed to serve you and represent you before the very throne of God. And so don't settle for anything less. Look to heaven where your Savior right now is representing you in the very presence of God himself. But that's not all. He says, like, look past the temple. Look at where Jesus is doing work for you. It it couldn't be any better. Jesus in the presence of God himself doing this for you. But secondly, he says, wonder. Secondly, not just where Jesus is, but secondly, wonder at how Jesus is the substance of which everything else that came before is a shadow. Wonder at how Jesus is the fulfillment, as we've read today in the catechism. Uh, Everything was a shadow. He's the substance. I wish we had more time to look at this. Hebrews chock full of looking at the Old Testament and saying, all of this points us to Jesus. And so in verses three to five, he says, every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. So there you have the high priest, right? The high priest, important deal. And he says, like, the whole priestly system, the whole priestly system of needing to be represented before God, that is only a shadow. We need somebody to stand between us and God and our sin and his holiness. That's why God gave us priests. And the writer says, every high priest was doing this, but the priest is only a shadow of the great priest who's to come. And he goes on, he says, uh, every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Okay, offerings. Have you ever read Leviticus? And you're like, wow, what are all these? Like, it's amazing. You've got all these different sacrifices, right? Like thank offerings and guilt offerings and sin offerings and thank. You just go in. I remember studying it recently in charts and understanding when you do which and which one. I picture the new priests in the temple, like flipping through Leviticus. Like, what do we do now for this one? Like, what's the, and the old guys saying, like, let me just walk you through this. Like, I've been doing this for years. It's complicated, but we can figure this out. Friends, it's amazing. When you read Leviticus, you see the richness that points to the depth of our sin and the provision. Uh, What all these sacrifices point to is sin exacts a price. That price has to be paid. The price is death. But God has graciously allowed substitutes to take our place that as these animals are sacrificed, God is basically saying to us, your sin demands death, but I provided a substitute. Instead of you dying, I'm gonna allow an animal to die on your behalf so that you don't have to die, you can live even though you deserve death. And what the author is saying here is, well, all these sacrifices that need to be given, they point us to the reality that our sin has a cost, or the cost is death, that a substitute. And he's basically saying, uh, that is a picture of the ultimate sacrifice that Jesus offered on our behalf. That God himself, in the person of his son, came to earth and offered his life on your behalf. God himself, God the son, died for you, offered the perfect sacrifice. All of that is, all the sacrifices, all the, think about the blood over centuries, all the blood that was spilled, all of that is just pointing to the perfect sacrifice that's to come. And so, the high, high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices. Necessary for the priest also has something to offer. The priest was a sinner himself. 
And so he had to offer something for his own sin. And then it goes on, if he were on earth, uh, he would not be a priest at all since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. And then here's the point, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. All of these, in other words, were just pointing to the ultimate reality, the temple, the sacrifices, the priests. All of these were just pointing to the ultimate reality. Jesus is our priest. Jesus is offering the perfect sacrifice for us. And Jesus now stands in the very presence of God doing his uh, ministry for us right now. All of these things were just a shadow of the ultimate reality. Friends, verse 5 is the key. They serve as a copy and shadow of heavenly things. All of these things were just mimics of the original so that they would point us to ultimate realities, that we would understand that God uh, is, is revealing ultimate reality through these pictures. And he's saying, don't confuse the pictures for the reality. These pictures were just meant to point us to Christ, but now we have Christ himself. You have the reality, the substance, and they only had the thing that pointed to it. Friends, do you realize today we don't need a temple? We never do because we are the temple. That God has made a new reality in which we have direct access to God himself. Do we, do we realize we do not need to do anything more to uh, atone for our sins because the perfect sacrifice has been offered for our sins? Do we realize that we do not need a priest, a holy man, to stand before us and God because there is a holy man. His name is Jesus standing before us and God. We have the ultimate reality. All of these things were shadows. Um, you know, the, I look at, a, I, I saw a painting yesterday. I was like, I really like your painting. And he's like, that thing? And then he pointed at my grandson. He's like, your grandson could paint that picture. It's that bad. Um, and what he was, I really liked the picture, actually. I thought it was very good. And I was like, going, that's amazing. But the picture was of a church. And it, it's almost like if you took that church and you took the scene that it was meant to point to, you'd say, there's no problem here confusing which one is the painting and which one is the reality. And Hebrews is saying, friends, don't lose sight. The Old Testament is the painting. Jesus is the reality. Look at Jesus. Don't get lost in all the the things that were only meant to point to Jesus, look at Jesus himself. Look at the reality to which the Old Testament saints could only peer through a distance and we get to enjoy it ourselves. Wonder at Jesus. And then the third thing, here's a third thing he says. So wonder at where Jesus is right now. Um, secondly, wonder how Jesus is a fulfillment of all the Old Testament, all the prophecies, all the sacrifices, all the priests. But finally, he says this in verses 8 to 13. If the other two don't make you wonder, I pray that this one does. Finally, thirdly, wonder at the better promises that you've been given. Wonder at the better promises that you've been given. Verses 8 to 12 are uh, one long quotation from Jeremiah 31. In other words, what Hebrews is introducing is not anything new. This goes back centuries, goes back to the Old Covenant himself. What we have in verses 8 to 12 are is actually the longest quotation in the New Testament of the Old Testament. And so this is very significant because the writer of Hebrews says, I'm just going to hit copy and paste. Uh, I'm going to copy and show you that this is not something that God just made up. It was his plan all along. But as far back as Jeremiah, Jeremiah said this was going to happen. And what he's doing in this quotation is basically saying, even in the Old Covenant, 
There was a recognition that the old covenant wasn't enough. The priests, the sacrifices, the temple, it wasn't enough. But now Jesus has come and enacted this new covenant. And he says in verse 8, actually verses 7 and 8, he's saying, you know, the whole problem with the old covenant, uh, the old covenant was good, but here's the problem. Uh, It wasn't faultless. There was something more needed. Uh, It wasn't high-powered enough. It didn't really meet the people's need. There's a need for something better. In verse 8, he says he finds fault with them. And I think what he's saying is it's not like the problem was with the old covenant itself. The problem was with us. The old covenant didn't go far enough to deal with our real problem. So there was something greater needed that he says we now have. And here's what we have, the new covenant, new terms of relationship that God has made with us, way better than the old covenant. This should bring us wonder as we look at this quotation. The old covenant didn't bring a transformation of people. Man, you read the Old Testament, you see sin, you see God's grace and redemption, you see hope, and then you see sin. It's like a continual cycle, probably downward of of God's grace, but sin and failure, greater failure. By the end of the Old Testament, you're just like, there's no hope. And then Jesus comes along and changes everything. And here, why? Because of the new covenant. Here's what the new covenant gives us. Four things in verses 8 to 12. First, a new power. Verse 10 says, well, let's go begin in verse 8. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. This is Jeremiah that I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of the Judah, not like the old covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Here's the problem with the old covenant. They did not continue in my covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declared the Lord. That's the whole Old Testament right there. God saving, God redeeming, people failing, and God basically saying, like, I'm still going to be gracious, but I'm done with them. That's a whole pattern, and God shows more grace. They fail. The cycle continues, but everything's changed now. Verse 10, here's the first thing that he, the new covenant gives us, a new power. This is a covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declared the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on my hearts. And here's what he's saying. I'm not just going to modify their behavior. I'm not just going to command behavior. I'm going to change them from the inside out. I'm going to actually change their hearts. I'm not just going to give them tablets that tell them what to do. I'm going to actually change their hearts so that inwardly they'll know what I'm calling them to do. You know the thing, uh, Dave, I don't know where you're sitting. I really appreciate the prayer confession today. Has anybody struggled with sin this week? This is like all of us are raising both hands right now, right? Like, you know the thing, if you are walking with Jesus, if you are struggling with sin, that is not evidence that you're uh, not one of his. But you know what God does? When you sin, if you are walking with Jesus, even as you sin, you hate that sin. And as you sin, you're just like, Lord, I hate that I'm doing this. You know what that is? That is exactly what is written here. That he's put the law. You don't have to open the Bible and say, where is this? This is not to do it. Inwardly, the Holy Spirit, it's, it's the law. It, it's his word, but it's also the spirit is working within your heart to say, this stinks. This displeases God. Displeases God. Don't do it. And we hate it. That is evidence of God changing you from the inside out. 
God has given you a new power, a power to obey him. I think as Charles Price once said, um, the Old Testament, we used to read the law, thou shalt have no other gods before me. You know, thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not take God. And it's all like, you won't do this, you won't do this. And he's, you know what the Spirit does? He turns them from just commands into promises. You will not have any other gods before me. They become promises. You will not commit adultery. You will not lie. All, all the things that were once just commands are all of a sudden things that the Holy Spirit empowers us to do from the inside out. Friends, you have a new power in your life, but you also have a new relationship. Verse 10 continues. I will be their God and they shall be my people. You just have to go back to a few verses, uh, back to verse uh, 9 when he says, uh, I took them by the hand to bring them to the land of Egypt, but they didn't continue the covenant, and so I showed no concern for them. God basically said, <laughs> like, man, how, you guys aren't obeying me, but here he, may, he makes a great promise. I'm making a new relationship with you. Uh, he promised that Israel would be his people, but here he says, I am binding myself to you, that I am committed to you to the end. If you are one of mine, if you're in Jesus, I'm not going to change my mind about this. I am claiming permanent ownership of you. I'm committing myself. You never have to wonder if we're going to be on good terms. Despite your sin, I'm committing to you. This is my commitment to you. You are my people. I will be your God. Friends, in the New Covenant, God has given himself to you irrevocably and taken you as his own. You belong to Jesus. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you belong to him. Nothing will change that. Nothing will separate you from the love of God. He is yours. You are his. Thirdly, not just a new power, not just a new relationship, but a new community. I love verse 11. They shall not teach uh, each one his neighbor and each one to know his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And what he's saying here is, is I be different classes of Christians. Not going to be like, uh, you're like a grade A Christian. You're like a grade C Christian, like, you know, sorting. And it's like all the, it's going to be like, no, I'm going to have a relationship. I'm going to be working. All, there's not going to be different levels. There's going to be, I'm just going to be completely drawing all of my people to myself. They're all going to be mine. They're all going to be hungry to know me. You know, in the old covenant, the reality is there were many unbelievers within uh, Israel and Judah. There were many people who didn't truly know the God, the Lord. And what he's saying here is, I am building a new community in which all who truly know me will know me from the least to the greatest. It's going to be like, it's just going to be amazing because I understand in the church, we don't know who the true believers are. The wheat and the tares, the parable of wheat and tares means that in every church, there's going to be a mixture of believers and unbelievers. But God is saying, all who truly are my own, all that I truly call to myself, like, they're all mine. They're all going to know me. There's not going to be different classes where some Christians know me and some Christians don't. There's not going to be one class of Christians that has more access to me. Everyone's going to know me from the least to the greatest. What this means today, friend, is if you, are, if you feel like you're a weak Christian today, you have no less access to the loving heart of God than the most mature believer who's here today. If you have the weakest faith in Jesus, but you're, you know, the, the power is not the strength of our faith, but the object of our faith. If you have the weakest faith in Jesus, you are not a second-class Christian. You have 
Complete access to God. He is holding you. You are his. Friends, all of us from the least to the greatest can share in this reality. In verse 12, the final thing that he mentions here is a greater forgiveness, a better forgiveness. I will be merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Under the new covenant, sins were not fully forgiven. They were covered up. If you ever have mold in your bathroom, it's a little bit like that. You know, the, you're selling your house, and you want the mold to disappear because it has to sell. And so you take some paint, and you go over the mold, and it does the job, and the new seller is like, this looks good. And about a month later, they're like, why is it moldy in here? Well, it's, well all you've done is covered over. You haven't actually dealt with the problem. You've just painted over it. The blood of bulls and goats could never do the job. They temporarily covered over the problem or sins, but no, the blood of an animal, the blood of a bull or goat could never atone for our sins. But now, in the coming of Jesus, the final and full sacrifice, God himself did not just paint over our sins, but full payment was made in Jesus. Your sins have been dealt with fully and finally. God has promised he will not remember your sins anymore. Friends, all of this is amazing. All of this should bring us great wonder. There's no greater salvation than that which Jesus Christ has offered to us in the new covenant. And the writer is saying, don't lose your wonder. Lift your eyes from earth to heaven, from your works of weakness to God's works of power, from enslaving religion to Christ's liberating salvation. He wants us to wonder again at Jesus because the more we wonder at Jesus in his salvation, the less we're going to be tempted to wander from him. I have just one point of application today, and it's this. Would you stand amazed as you think of what Jesus Christ has done? Would you stand amazed as you wonder at him today? Don't lose the amazement. Don't go looking for anything or anyone else. Gaze at Jesus, behold him in his glory. Keep looking until you're filled with awe and wonder. Because if you don't do this, you will be distracted. I was thinking this morning, my mother, when we were kids, used to say, guys, come look at the sunset. And you know what we would do as kids? Mom, like, and now I, I, I am just like, I want to, every sunset I see, which isn't nearly enough, I want to go, wow. And could we do this with Jesus? Could we just every week gather together as we sing these truths and songs about Jesus and somebody says, look at how amazing Jesus is. And we're like, oh, again, let's look at him. Let's be filled with wonder. Let's ask his spirit to fill us. When we see Jesus and what he's done, that he represents you in heaven, that he's a substance of, of which everything else was a shadow and that he's given you these amazing promises, why would we not bow in wonder? Why would we look? anywhere else. And so, Father, we pray, fill our hearts with wonder. There's nothing more that Jesus could have done for us that he's done for us. Um, Lord Jesus is, when we look at him, even apart from the salvation that he's made, we're filled with wonder, the creator of the universe, the one who reigns over all. Father, when we look at Jesus as we see his character, Lord, we're filled with wonder. But then when we think the, of the fact that he's accomplished so much to save us, to rescue us, and Lord, not just his past work on our behalf, but his present work, that right now he's 
in your presence, representing us before you. Thank you for Jesus. Lord, would you forgive our hearts that we get so casual and flippant that we lose sight of the beauty and wonder of Jesus. And Lord, I pray through your Holy Spirit, would you elevate our hearts that we would gaze at Jesus until we're overcome with wonder once again at not only who he is, but what he's done for us. We ask this in his name. And Lord, by the power of the Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Daryl. So we're going to have a time of questions and responses. If you want to submit a question, you can go to gfcdonmills.live and do so now. Uh, Pastor Daryl, what was the point of God making the Old Covenant if he knew he'd be making a new one? Yeah, I mean, in his wisdom, uh, I think the question is, why didn't he just skip ahead to the uh, New Covenant right away? Uh, I don't know fully exactly. We know that right from Genesis 3, he promised that this was coming, so the promises were there right away. In his wisdom, it was just the unfolding, the way that he chose to progressively reveal these realities. And it could be, I I just spent a year, uh, last year, uh, I spent the first nine months preaching through the Old Testament. And I will say this, the New Testament became a lot richer given the old realities. So it might be that we would never really grasp the beauty of Christ if we didn't have all that preparation to go like, wow, it it helps us prepare to see the beauty of Christ, I think. But I don't fully know the answer. (laughs) Okay, very good. Uh, If God doesn't remember our sins anymore, how will he hold everyone accountable, including Christians, in the afterlife? How will he? Yeah, so the the, the term there does not mean actually that... uh, So we had a a helpful illustration. Uh, Shara and I were listening to a sermon in Josiah, and the preacher was giving a really powerful illustration about how uh, somebody was reminded of an offense, and they said... I don't remember that. And then they were like, you were there. Like, how could you not remember that? And it's like, well, because I've chosen to forget it. And uh, Shara and Josiah instantly looked over at me and, you know, were elbowing me in the middle of that. Like, evidently they thought I needed to hear that sermon illustration. Um, And I think that's a good picture of what God does. It's not that he uh, has a lapse of memory, but he chooses to forget it. And so I think on the judgment day, it's not that God will be forgetful, but he will choose not to remember. He will choose to... Uh, treat those sins as if they were all laid on Jesus because they were. Um, So it's even more powerful than just like, oh, I can't remember that. It'll be like, I choose not to remember that. I choose not to hold that to your account. Very good. Okay, another question similar to the idea of the necessity of another covenant, maybe going at it at a different angle. What are ways we can get rid of the doubt that God made a mistake when he created humans and is trying to fix his mistake throughout history. The thing that helps me with that is to know that before he even created Adam and Eve, that uh, he had, he knew from eternity, uh, Ephesians and Colossians talk about this was God's intention from eternity. So um, just to understand that this wasn't like God made us and was like, oops, I didn't think they would do this. But before he even made us, uh, he knew, this is the thing, God knew he would fail. And yet out of his great love, he still created us and still before we were even made or failed, he had planned our salvation, which is incredible when you think about it. Yes, it is. 
Uh, so when we think about the prophecy in Jeremiah, it often gets us thinking about, about future things. Does verse 10 uh, refer to the Jews all coming to Christ in the last days? After those days, it says, is this future prophecy? Yeah, well, one day we're going to have to go through Romans 9 to 11 to fully answer that question. I'm going to punt until then. Um, I do believe, and uh, I'll just... I'll say this tidbit without getting too far in. I am praying that God will still do something with uh, the Jewish people. And I don't know how widespread it will be, but I I am praying that God would uh, bring many Jewish people to himself. But we're going to have to save that for Romans 9 to 11 at some point. All the eschatology nerds want you to do that immediately. (laughs) I actually want to go through Revelation pretty soon. So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's foolish, but we're going to do it at some point. Okay, tell me all about the thousands of eyes, please. (laughs) Very good. Uh, A question about application. Um, What are some practical things that we can practice to restore our wonder when we notice that we have lost or are losing our wonder at Jesus? One is a, dis- uh, I'll say a discipline and a prayer. So here's the discipline part. Um, again, the only way that I know how to relate this is, um, one of the best ways that helps me anyway is my marriage. Because uh, I, I, I'll just confess, sometimes I can become irritable in everyday life. And what I have to do is discipline myself. Like if I take a good look at Char when I'm feeling irritable one day, and I just remind myself, like, she... Agreed. Like, this is amazing. And I almost have to, the discipline of looking and reminding myself of what an incredible blessing it is. And so I think the same thing applies with God, just the discipline of the days we don't feel. The discipline of just going, walking ourselves through and saying, I need to take a fresh look because if I'm not amazed right now that God loves me, then I'm losing something. So the discipline, and what was the second one I said? The discipline and the... Oh, the prayer. Like, I think just praying God... I think it's a gift of the Spirit that, uh, so I think there's, it's okay to pray to the Spirit. Lord, right now my heart is cold. Would you just fill me anew with a wonder of who Jesus is? Because I think it will take a supernatural power. We won't be able to do it by ourselves. Thank so, you for listening to me. That was good. And remember. <laughs> Last question here for you. Uh, I find it hard to stand amazed in Christ when I see slash affected by the sins of others, brothers and sisters at church. Yeah. What should I do? Well, I mean, Robert Murray McShane said, for every look, I'm going to apply it wider than this. He said, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Jesus. I would say the same thing when you look at other, the failures of other Christians. For every look at them, take 10 looks at Jesus. Uh, I get it. Like, we are disappointing. I'm deeply disappointing. So uh, I think if we've got to shift our focus, I think we've got to acknowledge the reality of how people let us down. And uh, for some of us, I think it's going to be deep, profound hurts. So I'm not just saying ignore it but just to make sure that our focus is ultimately on Christ and we look at him more than anyone or anything else. Very good. Well, let me take a moment and pray for our congregation that we would be people that have this wonder in all that Christ is. Father, we thank you for Jesus, uh, that he is a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. We thank you that he has offered uh, sacrifice for sins once for all. We thank you that he mediates a better covenant and acted on better promises that has given us a new power and a new community. Lord God, thank you for all that you have done for us so that we can know you securely, Lord God. Father, we feel a variety of things that afflict our souls 
and cause us to become downcast, Lord God. Father, would you help us to be able to understand ourselves? Would your Holy Spirit help us to recognize and see when we are cold, when we are downcast, when we're wanting to go with a parade of people, lifting our hands and worshiping, but it's just really hard even to look up, Father. Lord, in those times, would you help us to hope in God? Would you help us to look fresh and new and find encouragement from others to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? Help us to stand amazed in all of your greatness, even when it is hard, in Jesus' name, amen.